You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. Well, as we think about this weekend coming to an end, one of the unique things about Grace Church Service is that we meet on Sunday nights, and so we're pushing right up against the beginning of a new week. And so in light of that, I want to ask you this question, not by way of show of hands, not by way of verbal response, just but by your own reflection, are you looking forward to going back to work tomorrow? Some of you are, some of you are not. I suppose your answer in some way is indicative of what you think about what you do or who you do it with or how hard it is or how easy it is. Those of you who like what you do or like who you do it with or feel like you do it in moderation, you probably have a different approach, a different way of thinking about tomorrow than others who are sitting here. Others of you are sitting here like, man, let's just hold on to this moment as long as we can. Let's just let Sunday ride as far into the night as we can. Because tomorrow comes a whole new week of responsibilities, of burdens, of challenges, and I'm just hoping that I can make it till next weekend. Well, if you think this way, it's understandable based on what it is that you do, perhaps. Others, perhaps, not necessarily. Last week in Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 to 14, we saw the most amazing depiction under the writing of Matthew, later testified to by Peter himself in 2 Peter, about the glory of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, glory of God in the highest and who He is, how amazing and remarkable He is, how He appeared not like they had normally seen Him as one of them in human form, but in His divine glory with all of the spectacle of the majesty of that, of which would be declared and seen in the richness of that, even testified to his wingmen Moses and Elijah with him. But now that scene has come and gone. That moment has passed, and he has now descended down the mountain, and it's time to get back to work. And as you're going to see in the text this evening in Matthew 17, this is not easy work. This is not work that comes with such amazing response and indeed agreeable activity. Instead, it is indeed a labor. Lessons have to be taught, not for the first time, not for the second time, but for endless amounts of time. And we need to learn some of those this evening ourselves. If you're new to the Bible or new to the book of Matthew, it's in the New Testament. We have Bibles for free at the back of the Welcome Center. In the meantime, you're welcome to just listen along or look on your phone or if you're choosing... But our text this evening is in Matthew chapter 17, verses 14 to the end of the chapter, through verse 27. Because Jesus now gets back to work. As he says in John chapter 6, verse 38, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And from verses 1 to 13, where he was seen in his transcendency and his unveiled glory, it is now back to his earthly life and his demanding ministry. First lesson that Jesus is going to teach us is in verses 14 and 20. Jesus teaches us about faith. 
Look with me at verses 14 and follow along. Matthew writes, When he came to the crowd, a man came up to him, kneeling before him, and said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic, and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire, and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Verses 14 to 20, Jesus teaches us about faith. Now, in this account here in Matthew, this account is picked up by Luke and also by Mark. All three of these writers talk about it. It's a significant incident, and they have different levels of detail and dimension, but for our purposes of the evening, we're going to focus in on Matthew's record of it as he wants his readers to understand the significance of what's being displayed here. And here's kind of the scene. You basically have 12 disciples, but they're not all together. There's Jesus and three of them, Peter, James, and John, and they have gone up the mount, and they're with Jesus. Meanwhile, the other remaining nine are down. They're downstairs, not downstairs, rather. They're sort of down the mountain in the village area, and there's a bunch of crowd there. It's got, only got the, the, the scribes, the religious sort of critics, if you will. It's also got uh, this man here with his son who has brought his son. And as we see earlier in the book of Mark, in Mark chapter 9, the father basically has a conversation with the disciples before Jesus shows up. He's like, hey, can you help me with my son? Knowing that these disciples go with Jesus, they cannot. And now there's a bit of a ruckus, if you will. Jesus now shows up, and there's a bit of a, a mess, if you will. And here he is, stepping into this scenario. And the father falls down and says, Lord, have mercy on me, kneeling before him. His appeal to Jesus for mercy now, what we see is we see basically the symptoms of the problem, right? It describes him here as being epileptic. He suffers terribly, the father describes. He falls into the fire and he is often into the water. And you have to just understand how difficult this would be for this father years prior to this moment and in this moment. Let me just help you appreciate the significance of what the scene would be like. If you're a parent of this child, you have pretty much spent day and night, making sure your child does not kill themselves. Some parents are like making sure their children like, you know, don't write with crayons on the wall. Don't stick their chewing gum underneath the dining room table. Uh, they're making sure that they've picked up the room. This child throws himself into a fire and has the scars on his body to prove it. This child has had to be saved from drowning because he's thrown himself into water. You can imagine how stressful it would be to be this child's parent. Furthermore, you can also imagine what it would be like to receive the scorn of those in community about this child if you're his parent. See, today, 
we can often sometimes be simplistic in our parenting approaches, right? Kind of this transaction like, hey, if you do X, Y, Z, you'll get A, B, C. And so if you're not getting A, B, C, well, the problem is you're not doing X, Y, Z. We kind of have this transaction idea of like what parenting is like. It's quite simple. Just do these following things and you'll just kind of have this beautiful product. And honestly, if you don't have a product, when there's something wrong with your parenting, it like says somebody who's never been a parent, perhaps. But it's more complicated back then. Back then, this kind of epilepsy was truly recognized as perhaps being something other than just what they naturally saw. As we're about to see here, it's demonic in its source. That seemed to be a bit in question for some, but that would be traced to a failure of the parent and a judgment by God. So now the belief is you not only have the scorn of the community, you now have the scorn of God by implication that if you've got this child, you've obviously done something wrong because God would not give bad children to good parents. Can you imagine how distraught this dad is to now have brought his son to the person who he has heard has changed lives, exercised demons, he has healed the lame, he has done everything nobody could ever imagine, he has accomplished it. This is his chance, and he gets there, and he's not there. Talk about disappointment. But as disciples are, and as disciples, we got this. Matthew 10, we've already been sent out before to do this. We've got this. We can handle this. Except they don't handle it. Jesus comes now down the mount in the middle of all of this scene I've just described to you. You can understand why the father falls on his knees and says, Lord, have mercy on my son. Now, Jesus' response, if you don't understand it, seems incredibly insensitive. It, it, it really does. It seems quite unloving. It seems like, wait, I thought Jesus was like really like a, like kind of come to me, all your heavy laden burden, I'll give yours. His, his words are in verse 17, Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Like, Wow, that, that seemed rather aggressive. Um, okay, if, if you think that, that's understandable, but let me tell you what he's addressing. His concern is not with the father, though the father's got some problems which he admits himself. His concern is with his disciples. As the passage unfolds when he has to teach his disciples, in fact, the real concern is with the entire landscape of everybody present. Because the challenge is what's being unfolded before Jesus as he comes down this is he finds the reality of this faithless generation. Here he goes from seemingly the heights of glory to the valley of rebellion and despair. Where does that remind you of? Who does that remind you of? How about Moses in the book of Exodus? He is up on the mount hearing from God. It is so overwhelming. His face is shining in response to this, trans, this, this glory. Not that Moses had, but God's glory as reflected in him. Given the tablets of God's word to God's people. Meanwhile, seemingly the largest religious service ever in attendance is going on down at the bottom of the hill as they worship a false god. That Aaron... 
The head priest is responsible for making. Moses comes down the mountain and sees this. We see such similarity here, but now with divine connection for what Jesus does. What we find here is that when Jesus comes to this point when he describes this faithless generation, he is talking about the crowd who repeatedly want the blessings of what Jesus has to offer, but not the lordship of what he asks. The religious leaders who are there to trap and discredit Jesus, not in any way to affirm and to endorse it as they knew the word of God. Even the disciples, as he repeatedly has to teach him, which we'll speak more about that, this is continued lack of faith. And even the father himself in the parallel text of Mark chapter 9, verse 24, when he asked the dad, do you believe? And the father says, I believe, help my unbelief. He recognizes himself. Jesus notes in this phrase here what he says. He answers back to them, oh, faithless. And he uses this phrase, twisted generation. Some of your Bible translations might have the word perverted. It's not just describing a morally perverted or twisted. It's primarily talking about the spiritual perversion that's inevitable from those who will not believe. One writer says, any person who does not genuinely trust God cannot escape having a distorted view of him and his will. So what does Jesus do? Jesus shows his deity one more time, and it says in verse 18, he rebukes the demon. Now, interestingly, this is the last time in all of Matthew's writing you're going to see Jesus rebuke a demon. After this point, this does not happen again. That, that, that authority over the demonic kingdom has been more than well-established he does this as an expression of his response, as appeal to mercy of the Father for the Son. It came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. And you think, okay, let's, like, let's throw a party, right? Like, if you've ever like, accomplished something well in life, you get like a job promotion, you graduate from high school, my goodness, even today, you graduate from kindergarten, and people like impress you, they're throwing your parties. You do any kind of thing, they're having like major parties. The reality is, they go right into teaching time. School's not out for the disciples. They have to be taught some lessons. Jesus heals, and he does an amazing thing here in what he teaches. Because now, if you will, after school detention has started, and the disciples are going to have a conversation, and Jesus is going to give some, some lessons here. Because it says there, in verse 19, the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why? Could we not cast it out? Well, why could we not do it? Like, what, what, what do we get wrong? And in some sense, you can kind of understand the question, right? Because the question is like, hey, we, we, we did this before. You gave us the power to do this before. You go back to Matthew 10, like, this is something that you sent us out to do. And here we are trying to do this. We weren't doing it in our name. We're doing it in your name. But it seemingly didn't work. Jesus had to teach them again. And to teach them repeatedly over and over and over again. This is what he says, because of your little faith. This lesson, I have to admit, even as a preacher of God's Word, I feel like I've kind of already taught this to Grace Church. Like, we've talked about this topic before. 
And I can only imagine Jesus like, well, get in line. I've covered this with my disciples. They were with me every single day, all day, all night. And I had to continue to repeatedly teach them and go over these lessons. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus taught the disciples not to fear, but to trust their heavenly Father who will provide. Matthew chapter 8, Jesus taught them after calming the storm about their faith. You do not have to fear. Matthew chapter 14, after Peter started to sink and Jesus saved him. Jesus taught them about their little faith. And Matthew chapter 16, after already feeding thousands, they're like, hey, where are we going to get food? And he's like, really? You're asking me that question? So he teaches them again, pointing out again the problem of their faith. So here's the reality of faith. Faith is easy when everything is going well. When, you're, when your hands are full of God's blessings, when your bank account has got money, when the relationship you've been wanting as a single, you now have. When your children are all walking with the Lord. When your job seemingly is secure, honestly, faith is like, yes. Faith that God can do more of that in my life. But that's not the challenge. The challenge comes when those incidents and situations are reversed. When there is a need, faith begins to shrink and give way to doubt. Fear begins to set up residence. Some of you are the parents of adult children. Others of you are the parents of young children. I sit sort of right there in the middle with a 21-year-old and two 18-year-olds. One of my sons is, as I speak to you, in Alaska doing who knows what, hopefully safe and alive. Another son, which you've heard from tonight, is about to go away to college in about a month. And another son I get to thankfully enjoy for one more year before he abandons me as well. As parents in the room know this who have older children than I do, you know what it's like when you're about to send your children out of the house at whatever age they go out. The question is, is my child ready? Is my child ready for independence? I mean, can they, can they make it on their own? I mean, have I taught them everything I need to teach them? Are they able to handle money? Do they actually know how to work and maintain a job? And do they know how to make their way home at night and not end up in some like, you know, place they're not supposed to be? And do they know how to choose relationships? And how are they going to interact with coworkers? And all these questions and all these things you kind of think, you know, as a parent, you're like, you kind of like check off the list. Did I cover this? Did I cover this? What about this? What about this? You're like, man, I don't know. I mean, Lord, there it is. You know, just there it is. And I'll just go ahead and tell you now, for those of parents of younger children, let you know, it, you're just totally at the mercy of God. And you can be as diligent as you want, but just still think of things you should have covered, but you did not. Try to be faithful, but there you go. This idea that kids moving out and living on their own. Jesus, as we're about to see, and what he's about to say, is about to have his disciples move out of the house. Because he is about to die, resurrect, ascend, and return to the right hand of the Father. And the disciples are not going to have Jesus with them every step of the way. And the question is, are they ready for that day? That's the question. They're not sure they're ready for that day. And this is the conversation about he's having with them about faith. 
When they say, why can we not cast out? He says, because of your little faith. And then he says this, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Now, just to understand this phrase, this is a Jewish phrase common at that time 2,000 years ago as a way to kind of like, you know, speak in sort of metaphors about the greatness or the impossibility of a task, about being able to move mountains. And Jesus takes that common phrase and he applies it to the issue of faith. I've been helped by the writing of Michael Wilkins who says, faith is not a particular substance, the more of which the disciples have, the more they can accomplish. It is not a gift of magic that can be manipulated at will. Rather, faith is confidence that we can do what God calls us to do. It is God, it is taking God at His word. Saying it differently, faith is not faith in your face. It's having faith in God and that God can do what God has promised to do using you and using others in your life. Our faith is in God whenever He calls you to do something, to trust Him. When God calls you to a city you didn't expect to move to, when He calls you to a neighborhood you didn't plan to live in, a job you weren't looking for, a relationship you didn't plan for, a situation you didn't see coming, a trial you certainly do not want, a challenge that you were not expecting, the response is the same the entire time. Trust God. Trust God. That statement implies that you know who God is. For some of you, that might be difficult to hear because your view, your understanding of God is so small. You know Him so little. That's not a source of comfort, that's a source of concern because you don't know him that well. I can assure you, I and others here would love for you to know him, even help you to know him by knowing how to read of him and see of him in his word and the power of display ultimately in the gospel. God's power to forgive sin because of the sacrifice of his son. So the first thing Jesus is teaching is that Jesus teaches us about faith. Secondly, Jesus teaches us about God's plans. Jesus teaches us about God's plans. Look to verse 22 and 23. It says, They were gathering in Galilee. Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. Jesus has gone over this before. This is not the first time he's talked about his upcoming crucifixion and resurrection. Matthew 16, verse 21, may I remind you what that says. Verse 21 of Matthew 16, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes, and he'll be killed on the third day, be raised. I've heard this before, again, earlier in our very chapter and right now, Matthew 17, verse 12, the Son of Man will certainly suffer at the scribes' hands. He is speaking of how he'll be treated. But now, this explanation, this revelation has a new dimension to it. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. It's speaking about an upcoming betrayal. Now, 
Honestly, this is like a pop quiz opportunity for the disciples. Like, wow, that's unexpected. Wow, that's concerning. But we trust you. We just got taught about this. Instead, understandably, not surprisingly, it says there in verse 23, they were greatly distressed. Um, This is taking us a different kind of modern day vernacular. They're having a panic attack. They were freaking out. They did not know what was going to take place, how it was going to happen. You can imagine the questions that would be coming, the fear that would be overriding their emotions and their processing this. This is their chance to trust God, and it's not there. In this, Jesus is teaching. Notice, it says, this plan, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, which as we learn in the book of Acts chapter 2, is this opportunity where we see in Peter's sermon, Acts chapter 2, it's both done by man and by the will of God, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. We later learn from Paul in Ephesians chapter 1 that the third member of the triune Godhead, God the Spirit, raised God the Son from the dead for the glory of God the Father, ensuring that that payment had been made in full. Friends, for those of you who are not familiar to Christianity, this is ground zero. This is the epicenter of the Christian belief. Outside of different views on different sort of denominations and what we think about baptism and what we think about different sort of church governance, and this is ground zero. And I want to be very clear for those of you who are not Christians that you understand, or maybe those of you who do self-identify as a Christian, then let's do a quick audit here that we understand this is the very reality of what it means that Peter says in Matthew 17, that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's not only the identity of Christ, who he is in his person, it's also the work of Christ, what he's about to do. Jesus says ahead of time, we now know in hindsight, looking back, that he will live, then he will die, then he will resurrect. He will live in obedience to God's law, fulfilling all that his word says that no one in this room has ever done perfectly. Accomplishing, demonstrating the righteousness of God. Then he will unbelievably die sacrificially, that all of those who would believe in him, the wrath of God would be poured out upon them, that they would not be punished. He would be instead. And then, miraculously, though he told it, they still didn't believe it, even at the day of his crucifixion, that he would three days later rise from the grave. Never happened before. Never happened in Buddhism, never happened in Confucianism, never happened in Islam, never happened before. And it happened. And he said it's going to happen to show he is the Son of God. Now, friends, listen to me. If you're not in Christ, this is the crux of the issue here. Why would the Son of God tell them about this? But more importantly, why would he do this? Because it was the plan of the Father to sacrifice his Son in order that all who would believe in him would be forgiven of their sins and have the promise of eternal life. Have you surrendered your life to Christ? Have you given your life to Christ? Do you see this as the gospel, the good news, or is this just like, okay, next verse, next news? How you answer that question differentiate those who are in Christ and those who are not. Third thing Jesus teaches here, Jesus teaches us about citizenship. So he 
taught us about, teaches us about faith. He teaches us about God's plans. And now, thirdly, he's teaching us about citizenship. Look at verse 24. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, yes. When he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? When he said, from others. Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Now, you're like, what are we talking about shekels and fish and hooks and What's happening here? Let me just give you the scene of what's taking place. This tax that's being referenced was expected to be paid by every Jewish man 20 years and older. It didn't matter where you lived, whether you lived in Jerusalem, whether you lived in the larger land of Israel, even outside of Israel, you were expected to pay this. And this came from the belief back in the Old Testament that the men were expected to pay for the upkeep of the tabernacle in the wilderness. And now that they have a temple in Jerusalem, they should continue this. And so later on, there was a, a tax that was implemented as an expectation. It was paid by Jews all over, no matter where they lived. But priests did not pay it. Gentiles or Samaritans were not allowed to pay it. And here they are coming, and the tax collectors, not the citizen of tax collectors, like on behalf of Rome, this is the one on behalf of the temple saying, hey... On our record books here, we don't have a tax down for you. And they don't ask Jesus, not uncommon, they'll ask the disciple, because they're out of respect for the teacher, hey, does your teacher intend to pay? Seems like a simple question. What's more complicated than that? They've not paid the tax. The question is, should they? Well, here's why it gets complicated. Because of the question of what's actually happening here. Now, just to understand the reality, as Luke chapter 8 verse 3 says, uh, Jesus and the disciples were largely supported by the people who benefited from their ministry. You can read that yourself in Luke chapter 8 verse 3. That's how they got primarily most of their income was through the supporting people who benefited from their ministry. But notice what Peter is actually doing here with this conversation about tax. He talks later on about where the money should come from. He doesn't say take it from what they have. He's got some other place. We'll get to that in a second. But what instead, it's a complicated situation because Jesus, if he pays the tax, he's putting himself in the same position as regular citizens. Because Jesus asked Peter a question Hey, let me just ask you a question, Peter. When you're in a kingdom and there's a king and the king issues a tax, does he intend his royal family to pay? After all, they're related to the king. Or does the king intend, no, not the family to pay. He intends those who are citizens outside of his family who are in the larger community. They should pay. And Peter's like, uh, this one I know. I can answer this question. We had questions for you, but this one I can answer. Yeah. The, the, the king doesn't pay, and the sons of the king don't pay. The people outside pay. Peter and Jesus says that's exactly right. So is it true with us? So you'd think then, well, the answer is, well, then, so we don't pay? But it's more complicated than that. 
If Jesus pays the tax, he'd be putting himself in the same position as others. He would be categorizing himself as an outsider, not as a son, and give that impression, and it needed to be avoided. But if he refused to pay the tax, he would give the impression that he rejected the temple, and that stood what it stood for, and what all the gospels make clear, that he did not come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. So the question is, what does he do? Well, if there's not any tax that Jesus is obligated to pay, it seems like, well, then he would be free to not have to pay it. But verse 27 says, not wanting to give an offense to them. Who is the them? It's the people who are collecting the tax. Now, here's why this is interesting. Go back to chapter 15. For those of you who are with us, a few weeks ago, you'll know this text. Others of you who are guests, this will be new to you, but maybe familiar with the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 15, in the very beginning, Jesus is basically having a showdown with a conversation with the Pharisees and the scribes. They're challenging him by challenging his disciples. He challenges them back for breaking the word of God, calls them hypocrites, talks about what really defiles a person. And then, in verse 12, the disciples came and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? And basically, Peter goes, I mean, Jesus goes on to say he doesn't care. Yet chapter 17, and our text here, in verse 27, it says, however, not to give an offense to them. So like, Jesus, I'm confused. Why do you not mind offending these people, but you do mind offending these people? And if those of you who are asking that question here tonight, good question. I intend to answer that for you. Why? Because in chapter 15, the problem is these religious leaders were what he described as blind guides who should have known better, but they had turned their mind off from the Word of God and the problem was they were leading the blind into pits, he described. He wasn't worried about offending the blind gods. He was worried about the people that they were leading into those pits. And so he was willing to speak boldly, confrontationally to fix what needed to be addressed. And that needed to be addressed correctly and directly. But here, you do not have that. Here, what he's recognizing, understandably by implication, is the conscience of these individuals, they're simply doing what they've been told to do, which is to collect the tax as a representation of what is viable and to be honored, which is the, the preservation of the temple. He is wanting them to do it. What, what Jesus is doing here is being very careful with their conscience. He does not want them to go against their conscience, these, these tax collectors, by his example, leading them into sin. He, he wants to model for them not giving an offense to the temple tax collectors. Now, why is this significant? Because the temple is already jacked up. And this is where this gets awfully appropriate to you and I today. Jesus does not say, give the tax because where it's going is promised to be well spent in a good system that honors God. He has already shown in his ministry in the book of John, not once but twice, flipping over the tables at the temple because of how upset he is of how they've treated the house of God that's become a den of robbers. And it should be a house of prayer. And yet here he is seemingly funding that. 
Why? Because Jesus is teaching us a profound lesson here that we should recognize even as citizens of our areas of the country, of our states, of our nations, and wherever God places us around the world, that we have this sort of duality to our recognition. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. And the words of Peter in 1 Peter, we are sojourners. This is not our home. And with all humility, we mean to say we are not subject to men as if men ruled over us ultimately. However, as places in Acts 17 where God has placed us in these appointed places for these appointed time, we should live as witnesses in such places, understandably contributing to and supporting the work that's there as best as we can. And the significance here is it's about this issue of tax. Jesus models for them this principle of not giving an offense. Regardless of how unjust a tax is assessed, or how wrongly or irresponsibly it is spent, it is to be paid. If the Son of God claimed no exemption for himself in paying taxes to the quote-unquote den of thieves run by the wicked, false teachers and leaders of Israel, how much less can we, his followers, claim exemption for ourselves? What happens is we become self-appointed kings. We sit above these other places that God has sovereignly ordained in Romans 13 and think we know better. Now, remarkably, to sort of prove that Jesus is indeed God and doesn't need to pay any tax, what does he tell Peter to do? Basically, he's like, hey, Peter, do me a favor, go fishing. You're like, well, that sounds like we're changing the subject. Go fishing, cast a hook, only time a hook is ever referenced, Romans always nets in the scriptures, cast a hook, the first fish you're going to bring in, you're going to catch one, in his mouth is going to be a shekel. Shekel's enough to pay for two of them. And that in like a little humble flex on divinity, I don't know what is. I mean, you can do that, you can do that, you can do that drill a thousand times with your friends. Okay, do me a favor. I want you to walk over to the bay. I want you to cast a rod. The first fish you're going to catch, it's going to have a $100 bill. Take you and your friend out for lunch. I mean, you, just, you can do that drill like 10,000 times. It's not going to happen. Unless, of course, you're the son of God. We'll take care of this tax. We're going to take care of this tax in a way that still displays my deity. That I'm not subject to men by requirement. I'm subjecting myself to men for the grand purposes of what God has ordained Jesus Christ to do. Friends, these are profound lessons for us. Lessons about faith, lessons about God's plans, lessons about citizenship. The question is, what is God teaching you here this evening? I imagine with a room this diverse, people have been coming this many different backgrounds, and then there's different places in Miami, there's different points in your life by which this scripture is intersecting with you. Jesus has gotten back to work with his disciples. The question is, has Jesus been at work in your life tonight with the word? Has he been encouraging? Has he been challenging? Has he been convicting? Has he been comforting? Has he been directing? That's what his word is calling his people to do. As we like to say at Grace Church, we're about making disciples, then maturing disciples, so that then we might mobilize disciples for the honor and glory of Jesus Christ.
thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.